This morning's reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put, up, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perizuzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Well, good morning. Thanks for being here. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I just want to welcome you uh, this morning. Uh, I'm not sure how you come in. I, I know you're the brave this morning to uh, weather the the scary storm, storm of North Carolina, the snow that we uh, all freak out about, and daylight savings time, spring break. There's a lot of reasons that you couldn't be here, so I'm glad uh, that you're here and you're with us this morning. Uh, and I'm not sure how you come into this place this morning. If you come in uh, feeling uh, encouraged or discouraged, if you're full of hope or you're feeling hopeless, or uh, if you're sad or you're happy, if you come into this place unsure about faith in Jesus or sure about your faith in Jesus, However you come in, we really are glad that you're here and that you're with us, and I hope you feel welcome uh, to, to come as you are. We are uh, in a study in the life of David, First and Second Samuel, that we've been in for the past couple of months, and I started this series by saying that the life of David is a great place for us to understand not the perfect life, not the ideal life, but the human life, uh, the, the life full of struggle, the life full of ups and downs, uh, our life. And it's also a great place to understand Jesus, that the more we understand David, who is the son, uh, the more we understand David, then the more we understand Jesus, who is the son of David, is how Matthew's gospel starts in, in Matthew chapter 1. And so our hope in, in looking at the life of David in First and Second Samuel is that God will give us uh, insight into our own lives, but also the more we understand David, the more we understand Jesus Christ. And so our hope is to, to encounter Christ this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into Second Samuel chapter 6. If you will, pray with me. God, I, I'm grateful that your spirit is, is hovering here as it did in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. 
and that you spoke in the beginning and created. Uh, Lord, would you speak now and create within us a hunger and a thirst for you? Would your spirit move in, in a way unto our spirits uh, that you would meet us individually where we are this morning, that you would meet us as a community this morning, that we wouldn't just assent in our intellect, that, that you would truly, by your grace and by your power, uh, that you would change our hearts, that, that we would experience and encounter you this morning. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, six years ago, uh, I went on a vacation, and six years ago, I, I was single. I was not married, didn't have children, and so I went on a vacation by myself to California, uh, and I went to see some friends, uh, but primarily I went to just get away. I went to retreat and get refreshed and, and, and renewed, and I made a tea time uh, in Carmel, California to play Spyglass Golf Course. Now, I, I grew up since uh, the age of 10 playing golf. I love the game of golf. I know a lot about the game of golf. The week before going out to California, I read a book called The Game, which was about a, a golf match that happened in the 1950s in Carmel, California. And so I knew a ton about golf. I knew a lot about Spyglass, the golf course. But there was a huge difference from knowing about golf and about this golf course to when I teed that first ball up on hole number one and then experienced one of the best rounds of golf of my life. There's a big difference. I'm an Auburn University graduate. Some of you know that. I love Auburn football. At times, maybe a little too much. Uh, it may be an idol at times. Uh, and I can tell you all day long why our school is better than that other state school uh, in the state of Alabama. And I can tell you that there's not, nothing quite like going to an Auburn-Alabama football game that I deeply believe that it's the best college football rivalry, the best game to go to. I can tell you all about it. But there's a big difference from knowing all about it versus experiencing like Rachel, my wife, and I did a few years ago, sitting on the 50-yard line in Alabama, being Alabama, thinking they're going to win on a field goal at the end of the game with one second left, and it falls just short, and Auburn player Chris Davis receives it deep in the end zone and returns it 109 yards right by Rachel and I on the 50-yard line, and the crowd goes nuts as we win with one second left. Big difference between knowing about that and being there and experiencing it. Now, I grew up a UNC basketball fan. Some of you want to boo me. But I, I grew up a UNC basketball fan. Went to Dean Smith basketball camp when I was 10 years old. I watched many rivalry games of Duke versus Carolina. Could tell you all about the rivalry game and, and all about college basketball. But three years ago, I was finally able to check off a bucket list item. I got to go and experience this rivalry game inside of Cameron Indoor. And there's nothing quite like it. Big difference between knowing about it and then being inside Cameron and experiencing it. You can date someone. You can date a, date a girl or a guy and, and, and get engaged. You can make all the preparations for marriage. You can get 10 sessions of premarital counseling. Read five books on marriage. But there is a huge difference between knowing about marriage and actually experiencing the joys and the strains and the pains of marriage. You can get pregnant. You can read books on parenting. You can ask all your friends how to parent. There is a huge difference between knowing about being a parent versus experiencing the demands and the needs and the cries and the smiles and the love of a child. 
We live in a part of the world where most of you probably here have grown up hearing a lot about the Bible, a lot about Jesus, a lot about Christianity. We live in a city, Durham, North Carolina, with over 100 churches. You can buy a Christian book with the click of a button, can download a Christian sermon with a click of a button, churches everywhere. Some of you even grew up in Christian schools. But there is a huge difference between knowing about God and encountering God. There is a huge difference in knowing about Christianity versus experiencing the Christ of Christianity. I'm not sure who said it first, but I'm not sure if there's a, a truer statement than this. The longest distance of travel is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. The longest distance of travel is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. A move from head knowledge to experience. And it is the experience of God that will enable each of you to stand secure when you feel insecure. It is the experience of Jesus that will give you peace when you feel anxious. And it's the experience of Christ that will fill you with joy when you feel discouraged. This morning, we are looking at this passage of Uzzah, David, and the ark. And both men, Uzzah and David, know a lot about the ark. They know a lot about God. But only one of them is experiencing God. David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And in the process of doing so, the ark has two effects. That's four. Two. Two effects. <laughs> two effects on the ark. There's a death and there's a dance. There's a death and a dance with the ark. And so we're going to look at three questions this morning. What's this ark? Why the death? And why the dance? What's the ark? Why the death? Why the dance? Let's look first at what's the ark. Let me give you a little quick background. David is now the established king of Israel by this point of 2 Samuel 6. He's established the rule in Jerusalem. Right? It's the new capital, and he wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. The ark had been captured 30 years earlier by the Philistines. Now, the ark of the covenant was a rectangular box, not quite four feet in length. Uh, there, uh, it was about two feet in depth and width, and it was constructed with, with wood and plated with gold. The lid of the ark was made of solid gold. It was called the mercy seat. Two cherubim, golden angels, faced each other over the mercy seat of the ark. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there were three objects. The first, there was a jar of manna. It was a jar of manna from Israel's wilderness wanderings, and it represented God's provision, the provision of God. The second thing that was in the Ark were, were the tablets of law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that represented the commands of God. And the third thing that was in the Ark was the high priest of the Levites, Aaron, it was Aaron's rod, which represented the salvation of God as Aaron interceded on behalf of the Israelites. So you had the provision of God represented, the commands of God, and the salvation of God within the ark. Now the ark in and of itself wasn't magical. The ark held up who God was and what God had done and, and, and was doing in the lives of the Israelites. It was God's presence and his action among his people. The ark was the centerpiece of worship for the Israelites. It was the central piece of the tabernacle. It's actually the only piece in the Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctuary. And over the ark 
In the tabernacle was the Shekinah glory of God, the kavod, the glory, the weight of God, the face of God, the royal presence of God. And it's this ark, the Shekinah glory, the weight and face of God, that is the occasion for a death and the occasion for a dance. So let's look at why the death. Why the death? I'm sure you've uh, seen a sign before somewhere that, that reads, beware, right? Beware, be driving, beware of the winding road, which means there's cliffs as you drive, so beware. Or beware of the dog. There's a dog lurking that could come attack you, so beware. Uh, I traveled to Vietnam in 2002 when uh, living in China, and I visited the demilitarized zone uh, while we were there, and the, a guide who was leading us through the DMZ uh, told all of us to stay right behind the guide. Stay right behind because there were still hundreds of landmines buried in the ground from the Vietnam War. And there were signs everywhere as we walked. Beware the landmines. I was freaked out. <laughs> like I was walking like this. <laughs> I was nervous, right? Beware. Beware is another way of saying danger. This is dangerous. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, could have had a sign that said, Beware God. Dangerous if treated improperly. Let me give you uh, some more background on the Ark. I, I said this, but 30 years before this time of David trying to bring the Ark to Jerusalem, uh, it was captured by the Philistines. Uh, and there were, there were two priests, uh, well, I'll give you background. It, it was captured by the Philistines as two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were carrying the ark, uh, and the Philistines attacked, captured the ark, brought it back to their land. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, and as they brought it back to their land, they, they brought it to Ashdod, and they put the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, in one of their pagan temples, the house of Dagon. And the Philistines woke up the next morning, and they go to their temple, the house of Dagon, and they see their god Dagon face down in the temple. Well, they stand Dagon up, and the next morning they find Dagon face down again, but this time his head and his hands are cut off. God then aff afflicts the Philistines with tumors. Everybody gets tumors. And the Philistines res responded by saying, we got to get the ark out of here. We've got to get it out of here because the hand of the God of Israel is against us. So the Philistines decided that they're going to send the ark back to the Israelites. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, it tells us that they put the ark on the cart with two milk cows. And they sent the ark toward Beth Shemesh. And I, can I just kind of imagine the Philistines getting two milk cows and putting the ark on this cart and kind of giving the cow a good hard like spank on the bottom Go! Get out of here! Right? The hand of the God of Israel is against us, and the Philistines are cheering as the ark of God traveled far away. Well, then the ark arrives in Beth Shemesh, and God struck down 70 men because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. And so they sent it to Kiriath-Jerim, where it remained until this time when David finally says, let's bring it to Jerusalem. And here we are in 2 Samuel 6, where David gathers 30,000 men to get the ark. <laughs> 30,000 men. Verse 3 says, They carried the ark on a new cart, and Uzzah and Ohio drove the new cart. Verse 5, 
David and all the house of Israel were throwing a big time party. 30,000 people, bigger than any party most of us have ever been to. They're dancing, they're feasting, there's live music. They're having a big time because the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, it's coming back to the people. It's going to be in the capital of Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah puts out his hand to take hold of the Ark as it was going to fall. In verse 7, God struck him down, and he died beside the Ark of God. If there was ever a party stopper, right, if there, this was it. I mean, the party just, eat, radio, I mean, the record screeched. Everybody was silent as God struck down Uzzah in the midst of this party and celebration. So what's going on? Why is Uzzah struck dead? Now, I have, I have to say that this is a story that I think many people read and, and kind of meditate on, and maybe this is you this morning, and you hear this story and you go, that's why I don't believe the Bible. I don't, that's why I don't believe in the God of Christianity. I thought the Christian God was supposed to be loving and gracious and compassionate. Why in the world would he kill Uzzah, who's helping to transport the ark back to Jerusalem? This seems a little harsh. Seems like God's a little unjust in doing this. Why the death? Well, Scripture's pretty clear that there were specific rules for carrying the ark. And it was to be covered to be carried with the poles by the Levites, and it shouldn't be touched. And the oxen stumble. Uzzah reaches out his hand, and he holds on to the ark. One commentator makes the point that some people think this is the reason Uzzah died, that, that Uzzah didn't follow the rules. And so if you think that, you can have two reactions, right? I don't want to trust this God, or I've got to be perfect, and if I'm not perfect, God won't bless me. He'll curse me. Both of those thoughts are wrong. See, this was the occasion of Uzzah's death, but it wasn't the cause of his death. I love what Eugene Peterson says, that Uzzah reaching out his hand to hold on to the ark was not a one-time instance, but it revealed the habit of his heart. See, Uzzah broke every rule for carrying the ark. Uzzah and the Israelites, they knew that the ark of God was the glory and the weight and the presence of God. They knew, right, they knew that the ark, when residing in the tabernacle, could only be approached once a year during Yom Kippur, and that was by the high priest after they made a sacrifice on the altar. They knew that the presence of God was weighty. They knew that the glory of God was holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the only attribute God repeated three times in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. And they knew that. They knew that. But Uzzah was unaware. He was unaware of the great gap between him and God. See, Uzzah thought he could manage God. Uzzah thought he could take God in hand. See, Uzzah thought that the mud and the soil of the ground would defile God more than he would. So Uzzah put out his hand to manage God. And it wasn't a mistake of the moment. It was a piece of of Uzzah's lifelong obsession with trying to control and manage God. And that, my friends, is deadly. Because God will not and cannot be managed. He is holy, holy, holy. 
And we could have a sign in here that says, beware God, danger. If we think we can handle him or put him in our hand. It's deadly to fall into this trap of thinking that we can control God in some way. Whether that be by our behavior, by our morality. If we ever begin to think that following God is about our morality, a way to live rightly. I'll tell you what can happen. We can slip into thinking that we can take over God and control God and, and kind of control His work in and through our lives. And, and if this becomes you or if it becomes me, the posture of our hearts toward people will change. We'll begin to think that we can, can manage other people, that all of a sudden we're in charge of other people's morality and how they live, right or wrong. We'll begin to manage them. I love again what Peterson says. He says that if this is us, we'll get the idea that we are important. That we're self-important because we've been around the important. It's deadly. It is deadly if we take this approach of God. Because if life goes well, you'll you'll tend to be a cold and proud person. Thinking you've earned it. That God gave you what you have because you deserved it. That may be you this morning. Or if you behave well and you, and you believe this way and life goes wrong, you'll become bitter. You'll become confused, and that may be you this morning. We cannot manage God. We can't control Him. We can't have Him in our hand. He is holy, holy, holy. And there's a great gap between Him and us. We need to beware. Beware if we think we can manage a holy God. Well, why the dance? So what's the ark? Why the death? Look at why the dance with me. David, in this passage, gets angry at God. Right after others struck down, he's angry. But then verse 9 says he's afraid. He's full of fear. And I will say that this is where every person must begin in becoming a Christian. It's where we must begin each day as we walk as a Christian in fear not terror but reverence and awe of god that we have to believe what the bible says that all of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of god and that anyone who comes before a holy god there must be trembling and awe as we stand as sinners before a perfect and holy god so david then took the ark to obed edom for three months right right after uzzah struck down And the house of Obed-Edom is blessed. And now David's wanting to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But this time, he has a little bit different approach than he did in verse 1. Verse 13. When those who bore the ark of the Lord went six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. A little different approach. Now David isn't just assenting, but he's experiencing. He's, He's living into this truth that for sinful people to approach a holy God... There must be forgiveness, and for forgiveness to be bestowed, there must be a sacrifice. There had to be the shedding of blood, right? For forgiveness to be extended to somebody, somebody has to suffer. Either the person suffers who doesn't receive forgiveness, or the one who forgives suffers and endures the cost, right? If if you've ever had to uh, extend forgiveness, you've been hurt in any way by someone, either you make that person pay, right? You don't forgive them and you make them pay. Or you suffer in your extension of forgiveness. You endure the hurt and you extend 
right? The forgiveness. We shed blood. We suffer in the extension of forgiveness. God extends forgiveness in the shedding of blood. See, David is now getting the gospel a little bit more planted deep into his heart. David's experiencing God is holy, 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 and no one is righteous. God is gracious, and he forgives. But he does so through the sacrificial shedding of blood. David's experiencing now what we've said often here on Sundays, that no one, no one is too good to be beyond the reach of God's grace, and no one is too bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. Let me say that again. I said it wrong. No one is too good to be beyond the need of God's grace, and no one is too bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. And the result for David, as he's experiencing God, verse 14, is that David danced. David danced. The king of Israel, kings did not dance, but David, the king, could care less. He is experiencing the gospel in a profound way, with great joy, with leaping and dancing joy. Let me just say, if you are a moral person, thinking you can control God by your good behavior, or by your social involvement, you'll never dance. The gospel will never get deep down into your soul. You'll live life with little joy. Some of you may know how I met my wife, Rachel. I met her officiating a wedding uh, at, in Atlanta, Georgia. I met her at a reception. And I was talking to some friends at the reception, and uh, I leaned to this couple, married couple, and I said, God, I'm so tired of being this, the 33-year-old single pastor officiating weddings. And, uh, and the couple, the wife of the couple, grabbed me, drugged me onto the dance floor where there were a group of girls, and uh, and I had seen Rachel before, so I'm like, <laughs> like kind of go over. We make eye contact. Somehow, I get her to pair off with me, uh, and we dance for 30 minutes without saying a word. And it felt like five minutes. And then after we, we danced, we talked, and from there it was over. Uh, it was 10, 10 months of meeting on the dance floor, dating, engaged, married. Rachel literally made me dance. Literally made me, made me dance. My experience of her made me, and made the time fly by as we danced. As Christians, and as a church, Christ Central, how can we be a people who dance? Truly dance. It's not by getting more intellectual knowledge. It's not by your morality the only thing that will give us lasting, dancing joy is the experience of Jesus Christ in this gospel of grace. The gospel that we profess. God is holy. We must start there. He's so holy and so just that the only way we can stand before him is not on our own merit, but on the merit of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we think we can stand on our own merit, it's deadly. So we begin with humility and reverence, and God makes provision. No longer through the sacrifice of animals, but through the sacrifice of His only Son. Listen to Hebrews 9. It's the only place in the whole New Testament where the ark of God's mentioned. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the mercy seat of the ark. The cross is the place where the presence and action of God is tasted. The cross is where God's justice and his grace meet. The holiness of God and the grace of God at the cross of Jesus. Hear me, if you believe in the holiness of God without the love and grace of God, you will live in fear and think that your behavior is what gained you acceptance before God and there will be no dancing. And if you believe in the love of God without the holiness of God, you will think you can use God and think that he accepts you no matter what you do or what you believe, and there will be no dancing. We need to experience the Lord. We need to experience the gospel of Jesus. It needs to travel the longest distance from our head unto our heart. I'll just go ahead and say that what we need and what Durham, the city needs, and what our world needs is way less self-righteous I am important because I've been around the important type of Christians. Because those Christians don't dance. Rather, it needs people where the gospel travels from the head to the heart. And there is a joy. There's a grace and a love and a mercy that's so deeply experienced that we dance. We dance because of Jesus. We dance because through Jesus we can approach the throne of God. For in the face of Christ is revealed the glory and the weight of God. And it's in the experience of God and His glory that there is a joy indescribable that will lead us all to truly dance. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Take the knowledge that many of us have the knowledge of the Bible, the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of this gospel that I've just been preaching, the knowledge of, of what you have done, and would you, would you let it travel by your grace as a gift from you, by the power of the Spirit unto our hearts, that we would experience you, God, that we would truly experience you. For, for some here, that may be for the first time. For others here, we may have known you for a long time and, and our hearts just feel stale. The ground of our heart just feels hard. We need a fresh wind to blow. We need you to till the ground of our heart by your grace and let us encounter you yet again this morning and not just this morning, but every day. God, would you, would you move and would you work and would you lead us to be a people that truly, truly dance and celebrate and rejoice because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.